Now that victory was won, David seeks to unify Israel, but first he must unify his own army before bitter feelings frustrate Israel's future for national solidarity. This is the 60th sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from Samuel in chapter 30. Samuel in chapter 30, the entire chapter, chapter 30. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captive that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried it away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city and behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captive. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captive, and Anoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and the six hundred men that were with him, and came to the brook Bezor, where those that were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men, for two hundred abode behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Bezor. They found an Egyptian in the field, and brought him to David, and gave him bread, and he did eat, and they made him drink water. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins, and when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him, for he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. And David said unto him, To whom belongest thou? And whence art thou? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me because three days agone I fell sick. We made an invasion upon the south of the Cherethites and upon the coast which belongeth to Judah and upon the south of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Canst thou bring me down to this company? And he said, Swear unto me by God, that thou wilt neither kill me, nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring thee down to this company. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. And David smote them from the twilight even unto the evening of the next day. And there escaped not a man of them, save four hundred young men, which rode upon camels and fled. And David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. And David took all the flocks, and the herds which they drave before those other cattle, and said, This is David's spoil. And David came to the two hundred men, 
which were so faint that they could not follow David, whom they had made also to abide at the brook Bezor. And they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. Then answered all the wicked men and men of Belial, of those that went with David, and said, Because they went not with us, we will not give them aught of the spoil that we have recovered, save to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Then said David, You shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord hath given us, who hath preserved us, and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part alike. And it was so, from that day forward, that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel unto this day. And when David came to Ziklag, he sent of the spoil unto the elders of Judah, even to his friends, saying, Behold a present for you of the spoil of the enemies of the Lord, to them were, to them, which were in Bethel, and to them which were in South Remoth, and to them which were in Jatir, and to them which were in Aror, and to them which were in Sifmoth, and to them which were in Eshtimoah, and to them which were in Rechal, and to them which were in the cities of the Jeremelites, and to them which were in the cities of the Kenites, and to them which were in Hormath, and to them which were in Karot Ashen, and to them which were in Athak, and to them which were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were wont to haunt. Paul writes to us in the book of Ephesians, he writes to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4, the first 13 verses, by the same spirit the apostle writes, he says this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended upon high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Thus far is the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day with all of its lessons and all of its admonitions.
Now in the face of great sorrow and anguish over the situation that God brought upon David and his men through the vengeful Amalekites, David now must take action. If you remember last time we left the future king, he had just learned that the Amalekites had invaded Ziklag, burned the city, and taken captive David's wives and the families of his men as slaves. And of course, being a man of war himself, David recognized that action had to be taken. But before any action would be taken by the man of faith, David and his men lifted up their voices in lamentation until they could weep no longer. This was proper. They reacted, responding properly to the affairs at hand, and they wept. They grieved because of these frowning providence that God had brought upon them. Unfortunately, the immediate response by David's men was to blame David, so they sought to stone him which added insult to injury against the man of God. Instead of trusting him and standing by him in an attempt to rescue their families, they sought to blame him to the point of execution. And that's what people do. They blame other people. They don't look to God. And it is upon this turn of events where David calls upon God. Notice the man of faith. In light of all of this, they want to stone him. His wives are captive. The children are captive. The men are upset. And in all of this, David, it says in verse 6, encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Calling upon the priest, he calls for the ephod. Desiring to call upon God by the priestly ephod, David asks God if he should attack the Amalekites. Now what's interesting about David's request for the ephod is that we're not really told that the high priest puts on the ephod to inquire of the Lord for David, but it seems, at least it seems to imply that it's David himself that is so upset of the situation and wants so much to have an answer that He puts on the ephod. And if that is true, that is an incredible thing that David does because it is placing him in the position as a priest of God, acting as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ to inquire of God. And we see here that if that is the case, there's no rebuke from God as to this act, which would imply that God is not only allowing David to act as priest, even as he did eat the showbread, as we remember in time past, which was only allowed by the priests. There's no rebuke by God, but rather he opens his ears to David's plea and answers almost immediately in the positive. And so David asks, he inquires of the Lord saying, shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? What is your answer? Especially during this incredible trial What is your answer? And David is looking to God. And that shows, again, such deep faith. As we said previously, the natural inclination of any man would be to rush headlong into a vengeful rescue attempt without any consideration of the will of God. What if if God said, no, 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 it's not the time. How frustrating that would have been. What is happening to my wives? What is happening to my children? What is happening to the children and the families of these men? And yet, he waits upon God. He is able, after the weeping, after the initial weeping, which is righteous, he composes himself. He composes himself and he asks God, how should he act in this situation? Now, two questions must be entertained here as to David's actions. 
Firstly, what made him pause? How did that man compose himself to the point where he pauses, asks for the ephod, and asks God for guidance, knowing that the answer could have been something he didn't really want to hear? What makes a man do that? Well, he knew that if God was not in the fight to bring victory, the situation would have been even worse than it was. It would have been extremely bad if he would have acted impetuously in an act of revenge or rescue without having God in the battle, having God victoriously in the battle with him, it would have all been lost. The second question is, how? How could and he's a real man. You gotta understand, David's a real man. He's not some he's not some God man. He's a real man. He's got the same passions as you and I. How could a man like David, in such a situation like David, be so patient as to wait upon God for an answer, which could be the matter of life and death for David's family and every family of his men? Well, I submit to you this. He was a man whose faith and trust in God made him a man of devotion and self-control. It was David's devotion to God that made him a man of self-control. He had a control over his spirit. Sadly, today, in today's modern world, even among those that profess Christianity, and even those that profess a love and trust for God, even those who believe they are devoted to God. Self-control is an elusive thing. In a world where immediate self-gratification happens at the speed of light, the click of a mechanical mouse, the human race has lost all that important component, which is that component of patience. I remember seeing a, a little cartoon of a little boy kneeling by his bed, praying before he goes to sleep, asking God for patience. And he says, Lord, please give me patience. But Lord, I want it now. Well, that's how we are. David was a man of patience. Patience is the exercising of the human will to wait. Patience is the exercising of the Christian to wait upon God. When a man is patient, he is better able to contemplate more than just his impulse. He is able to clearly think through a situation, more clearly think through things in a prayerful, meditative manner, bringing the situation before the throne of God, looking for counsel. A man of patience is a man of strength. And a man of true strength is a man of patience. Solomon tells us that a man who cannot control himself, because that's what patience does, it gives us that self-control, that moment of pause. Solomon says that a man who cannot control himself, in other words, a man that is impatient and impetuous, is as a city whose walls are broken down. In Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight, he says this, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Because in those days, all the cities had great walls around them to protect them from the enemies. And this illusion, this example 
means that a man without self-control of his spirit is open to all manner of enemies since his walls of security, which are securing the city, are all broken down. But there's also a deeper spiritual meaning here, which illuminates the practical meaning. The use of the term wall in Scripture always symbolizes the law of God. Thus, whenever we lose control over our spirit or whether we lack patience in situations that should be met with inquiry before the Lord, our knowledge of the law is broken down because the law says, wait on the Lord. And the admonition, wait upon the Lord. For waiting upon the Lord, that is the time when you will renew your strength and your clarity of focus. And that admonition is a commandment. It's not... A recommendation, you know, if you really feel like waiting, then you can wait. But if you want to run headlong into destruction, go right ahead. And whatever the law says, it's always, always for our benefit and our blessedness. David understood the importance of waiting. He was a man who knew when to wait. Notice what he says, Psalm 25, 3, Psalm 25, 5, Psalm 27, 14, Psalm 37, 7 and 34, Psalm 59, 5, Psalm 59, 9, Psalm 62, 5, Psalm 123, 2, Psalm 135, Psalm 145, 15. Here's a man who knew what waiting was all about, how to be patient. Let me read these to you. Let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait on thee. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Wait on the Lord and keep his way. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Wait on the Lord and keep his way and he shall exalt thee to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, thou shalt see it. Because of his strength will I wait on thee for God is my defense. My soul, wait thou only upon God for my expectation is from him. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. Notice Psalm 130 and verse 5, I wait on the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. The eyes of all, the eyes of all, notice, the eyes of all wait upon thee, all of thy people, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Notice, waiting, waiting on the Lord for a clear direction. Solomon echoes his father's counsel. Notice, in Proverbs 20, 22. Say not thou, I will recompense evil, but wait on the Lord, and he shall save thee. That perhaps was the hardest thing for David to do. He wanted to have, he wanted justice and he wanted it now. He wanted to recompense evil for evil, but he waited upon the Lord. 
Isaiah agrees. Notice Isaiah 40 verse 31. But they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. And the opposite then would be true. Those who don't wait on the Lord are depleted of their strength. But those that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. Note Isaiah's hope for the future political victory of the Messiah in Isaiah 49.23. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait on me. They shall not be ashamed that wait for me, wait for me. I will recompense. And perhaps that's the hardest thing in the world to do. So how does one exercise his or her spirit in waiting upon God? How does one exercise their spirit in waiting upon God? In other words, what can we do? Is there something that we can do to develop a mindset like David? A Davidic mindset when it comes to patience and waiting on God. What exercises? Are there any exercises, spiritual exercises, practical exercises that we can execute to assist us in being more patient? Or to put it another way, what can we do daily as a religious exercise that will aid us in our trust and waiting upon the mercy of God? And the answer to that is fundamentally this, meditation. Meditate upon the Word of God. We must meditate upon the things of God every single day throughout the day. Meditation. What is it? When I say meditate, what does that mean? Does it mean emptying your mind? Meditation is digesting the various attributes of God, His doctrine and His law, his grace, love, and wrath, along with how he guides and providentially orchestrates all things for the good of his people. It's the digesting of the things of God. The great Puritan Thomas Watson put it this way. He said, It is better to meditate on one sermon than to hear five sermons. Many complain that they do not profit from sermons. This may be the chief reason because they do not chew the cud. They do not meditate on what they have heard. This is what the psalmist was referring to when he penned the introductory psalm for the entire Psalter. In Psalm 1, he says this, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. It's always on his mind. He's always considering things of God. Note the benefits of such a meditative habit. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doth shall prosper. That's the fruit of meditation. The Puritan pastor at Essex, the Reverend Nathaniel Renew, commenting in 1670 on Psalm 1, wrote in his great work on meditation called Solitude Improved by Divine Meditation. In it he instructs this. He says, Not a watch set in the night, but he had his meditation. Oh, most admirable frame of spirit, 
a king and a daily meditator and a night meditator also. It was not family business, nor state affairs, nor war's urgencies and difficulties that so-called crowd in and impose upon his thoughts. But he would have his spiritual retreats. He would have his soul repasts in meditation and mount up to heaven by it. Renew explains how Meditating on both God's sovereignty and God's mercy is the fundamental means to gain better understanding on the fear of God and an appreciation of His mercy. Another Puritan, a great Puritan, Richard Sibbs, he adds this, he says, quote, So then a true Christian must endeavor himself to deliver the millions of God's mercies to the soul in secret thoughts, chewing the cud of every circumstance with continual, notice, continual contemplation. Renew, the reverend adds this, he says, meditation is like the assimilating or digestion power by helping to concoct spiritual food and turn it into spiritual nourishment. It's that digestion of what is heard, of what you have heard here and read there. The apostle, knowing the benefit of divine meditation and the power that it brings to the soul, he counsels the Philippians in this way. We've read this so many times. We know this by heart, but have we ever connected it with divine meditation? Notice what he says in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, here's my final thought. Here's the important, the whole counsel here in this final thought. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things, meditate on these things. The gift of divine meditation where you can recall things, the human mind can recall things by the work of the Spirit upon that mind. It is likely that the Apostle Paul was meditating himself on the discipline of meditation when he penned these words to the church at Philippi. Perhaps he considered David's counsel concerning his own meditation exercises from the Psalms. Note the focus of David's meditations. Psalm 19.14 Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Psalm 49.3 My mouth shall speak of wisdom and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. Psalm 119, verses 97 and 99 Oh, how I love thy law! It is my meditation all the day. I have more understanding than all my teachers for thy testimonies are my meditation. Notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, I have more understanding than all my teachers because I read a lot of books. I read a lot of scripture. I know apologetics. I've read all of the philosophers. I've done this thing. No, no, no. I've meditated upon my word. I've chewed the cud. And if you wonder why we're likened to sheep and goats, because they chew the cud. They bring it up. It's disgusting, but they bring it up. They chew it again, they swallow it down. They digest it further, and then they bring it up. They taste it again, and over and over and over. Isaiah gives us another glorious reason for the practice of divine meditation. Note how meditation brings an individual into a peaceful frame of mind, even when things are tumultuous all around him. I remember reading about Susanna Wesley when her boys were out of their mind, and moms, you may want to try this. 
And of course, you had the Wesley brothers who were probably little tyrants, little monsters when they were little. And when she was so racked with frustration, she would take her apron and throw it over her head. And the children would know at that time they should scatter. <laughs> because she was now thinking about the things of God, how not to kill her own kids, but focusing upon the things that really mattered. Isaiah says this, as he seeks to counsel us into how to bring ourselves into a peaceful frame of mind, even when things are tumultuous. Notice what it says in Isaiah 26.3, Thou will keep him in perfect peace. Thou, God, will keep him in perfect peace as long as his mind is stayed on Thee. As long as he's meditating upon thee, let this mind be in you, because he trusteth in thee. David's daily meditation before the trial and temptation of his resolve concerning the Amalekites was his redemption. The Reverend Renew observes this. He says, quote, Reading brings me meat. Meditation brings forth sweetness. Reading brings coals to the wood. Meditation makes the flame. Reading brings me the sword of the word. Meditation wets it. In other words, takes it out of its sheath. Reading barely proves pouring water into a sieve. Meditation is putting gold into a treasury. The former lets the water out. The latter leps the gold up. Oh, let me read much, but let me also meditate much. That meditation and reading may be commensurate. My soul's digestion portion to its reception, taking in by reading. This is what made the Puritan a Puritan. This is what made a Puritan a man of strength and resolve. And this is what made them be able to change the world they lived in. Not only that, the Puritan is what gave us the organizing of the American culture as it was meant to be. So without a solid practice of divine meditation, David, or anyone else for that matter, could not have trusted in the way that he did before God. And as a result of David's patience, trust, and fidelity, God answers him almost immediately after he prayed. Notice, and he answered him and he said, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. That was all David needed to hear. Having been given the divine go-ahead, David takes 400 men of valor with him. Once they arrive at the brook Bezor, as God's orchestrating providence would have it, David's men find an Egyptian in the field. Curiously, they find an Egyptian in the field and they bring him to David. We read this in verses 11 and following. And they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he did eat and they made him drink a little water and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit came again to him for he had eaten no bread nor drunk any water three days and three nights. Now consider how the Egyptian was treated. At one time in the history of Israel, the Egyptians were the tyrannical leaders of the nation enslaving David's forefathers. But now this Egyptian is shown kindness, which is a testimony of the kind of army David was leading since the man posed no threat to David's cause. Consider the gospel kindness in David's act of feeding the Egyptian. Firstly, he gives the man a piece of cake made of figs and two clusters of raisins. Now it's obvious that this was the very same act 
of kindness that Abigail showed David in 1 Samuel 25, 18. David is just reciprocating. On the surface, these fruits were a gesture of reconciliation, of kindness, friendship, even peace, meaning there was no harm to be done to this man. But the figs always are symbolic of God's people. In fact, God divides the good figs from the evil figs in Jeremiah 24 and likens them to his people, the ones that are faithful and the ones that are apostate. We see this in Jeremiah 24, 5 and following. Notice what it says. Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so will I acknowledge them that are carried away captive of Judah, whom I have sent out of this place into the land of the Chalcians for their good. For I will set mine eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them again to this land, and I will build them, and not pull them down, and I will plant them, and not pluck them up. And I will give them in heart to know me, that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return unto me with their whole heart, And as the evil figs, which cannot be eaten, they are so evil. So you see, the figs are a picture of the people of God. As for the raisins, these are simply dried grapes, and whereby wine is made, symbolizing perhaps the communion blood of the Lord. And so it seems that the cake of figs and the raisins represent the outstretched hand of fellowship and the covenant solidarity to this Egyptian by David, showing that the gospel is not only for Israel, but will go out to many nations of the known world, even to the enemies of God, as it was with this Egyptian. And it's curious that it was after three days and three nights, symbolizing again the resurrection of the Christ. And it is this Egyptian that gives David precious intel concerning the army of the Amalekites. This was an incredible providence, since David's army was pretty much depleted and fatigued to fight off the whole of the Amalekite army. So this really was a good thing that he met this Egyptian by the providence of God. Upon questioning the man, David learns that he was abandoned by the cruel Amalekite master because he became sick. And then he goes into detail what happened at at Ziklag, where the master leaves him. After three days, he became sick. And of course, he then recounts the fact that they did burn the city Ziklag with fire. But now, David had an advantage. Promising not to kill the Egyptian or turn him over to the Amalekite master, David uses the Egyptian for his intel to spy out the enemy. Consider verse 16 of chapter 30 and following. And when they brought him down, behold, they were spread abroad upon all the earth, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken out of the land of the Philistines and out of the land of Judah. And David smote them from the twilight even unto the evening of the next day. Notice the comprehensive nature of the destruction. These men were so reveling in their victory. They were eating and drinking and getting drunk and making merry. And that too was providential. They couldn't fight being drunken and celebrating. So David takes them. He smites them all day and all night. And not there was one man that escaped, save 400 young men, which rode upon camels and fled. David recovered everything, just like God said. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking. Verse 19, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil. Just like God had said, nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all, and David took all the flocks and then the herds which they drave before other cattle, and said, this is David's spoil. They took even more than they had lost. Now after the battle ended, and the victory won, David and his army returned to where the 200 men 
who were left for want of energy at Bezor had resided. Now these men didn't go down to fight. And therefore, contention now arises. Contention arises and the things are not very pleasant between the 400 men who went to battle with David and the 200 men that stayed behind. And there was the threat of disunity. Envy, bitterness, hatred, anger. And David came to the 200 men, which were so faint that they could not follow David, whom they had made also to abide at the brook Bezor. And they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him. And David came near to the people and he saluted them. In other words, he's bringing grace. You're my brothers. You're just like we are, even though you weren't in the battle. You're, you're one with us. But notice verse 22. Then answered all the wicked men and the men of Belial. God is identifying the schismatics. Because those who are schismatic are wicked men of Belial. Then answered all the wicked men and the men of Belial, of those that went with David, and said, Because they went not with us, we will not give them aught of the spoil that we have recovered, save to every man, his wife, and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. No, we want nothing to do with it. They didn't fight with us. That's it. Nothing to do with you. So now David's army is divided and it's disunified. Three camps. The one, the 400 men that fought and delivered the families from the wickedness of the Amalekites. The second group, the 200 men that were too tired to enter into the battle. And now there's a third group, the schismatic group, the wicked men of Belial. Obviously, these men were very angry that the 200 men seemed to shirk their responsibility, which could have endangered the entire battle outcome. Now, it's interesting that these men are identified as the men of Belial. In other words, they were wicked men, they were self-centered, implying that they lacked camaraderie and a desire for national solidarity. They believed that the 200 had no right to the spoils of victory since they had not been involved in the fight to gain that victory. They were not compassionate that these 200 men couldn't fight. They were not compassionate that these men were, were very fatigued and they would have probably cost their own lives in the battle or someone else's life in the battle. They wanted only to return the wives and the children to these men, but not the spoils of war as punishment for not fighting. Now in their mind, if you do not fight, you do not get any of the benefits of victory. Now that sounds logical. On the outset, that sounds a lot. To the natural mind, that sounds logical. Why should those that do not fight get the benefits from something they had nothing to do with? These men fought and put themselves in harm's way. They sacrificed themselves. Well, the other guys were hanging out at the Brook Bezor, drinking and resting and having a nice time in the sun. Why should they get the spoils? Why should they sit on the sideline? It didn't seem fair that all should share in the spoils of war. But David, the man of God, saw things differently. Then David said, Ye shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord hath given us, who hath preserved us, and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. It was the Lord. You are victorious because of the Lord. 
Not because of you. For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall all have the same spoils. Everyone is the same. We're all the body of Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now first, these 200 men, they had their goods taken as well. Their wives and their children were not the only things confiscated by uh, the Amalekites. Their goods along with their livestock were also taken. Why should they not have their rightful goods restored to them? The contentious men, the schismatic men of Belial wanted to take what was not rightfully theirs and to shame those that were not able to fight. And David saw this as an offense and a pretext for covetousness. Secondly, note David calls these men brethren in an attempt to unify all of his men as one man. Now David is a bigger man than I am because I would have said, now you stinking scallywags, how dare you? He calls them brethren to remind them we are brethren. If one is victorious, everybody is victorious. If one is sick, everyone is sick. If one mourns, we all mourn. If one rejoices, we all rejoice. We are brethren. We are not identified as different tribes, not even different families. We are brethren, one family, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Christ. We are families. He calls them brethren to bring to mind that they must be unified. Because without unification, as it is in the United States of America, without unification of religion and law and what is right as the difference from what is wrong, without that unification, we are doomed. And David knew that without that unity, Israel would be doomed. And this could have also been a way to verbalize that there would be no schism within David's army. There would be no schism here. Thirdly, David then gets to the meat of his argument in order to focus these men as to the real reason behind the victory. Ye shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord hath given us. You see, David tells them in no uncertain terms that the victory was accomplished by the Lord and not by their courageous acts of valor. Furthermore, God did it for all of David's army, not just for the ones who fought. In other words, he's telling these men, don't think so highly of yourself and think that you're so mighty, you're so smart, you're so skilled in theology, you're so skilled in military warfare as to defeat the mighty army of your enemy. You didn't do anything, you didn't know anything, you are nothing, God did it all. And so whatever we do, or whatever we've done, or will do, or ever hope to do for the advancement of the kingdom, we take no credit. For as the apostle says, it is the Lord who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Paul puts it that way to the church at Ephesus. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. Fourthly, David then calls them out for an answer. For who will hearken unto you in this manner? Will you argue that it was not God that delivered the Amalekites into your hand? He says, I don't think so. You're not going to argue that. Then David tells them this. But as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff they shall part alike. Everyone gets the equal share. Now there are a couple of things to be implied here. Firstly, the men who stayed behind, they had fought in the past. They fought in other battles. They were not shirkers. They were faithful to David, except for this last one against the Amalekites. They were just spent. 
They had a faithful testimony of valor and fidelity. If they had gone into the battle in an exhausted state, it might have not turned out very well. Maybe it would turn out badly for everyone. If therefore they stayed back, it would be better. So it was therefore better to stay back. The better part of wisdom was to stay behind. Don't put the rest of the army in harm's way. Secondly, David seemed to allude to a biblical principle which teaches that a man should be careful about protecting his possessions. In fact, David makes this a statute. Notice what Adam Clark, how he describes this. He says, nothing could be more just and proper than this law, this statute that David made. He who stays at home to defend house and property has an equal right to the booty taken by those who go out to the war. There was a practice of this kind among the Israelites long before this time, according to Numbers 31 and Joshua 22. Number three, there's a practical lesson here as well. Not everyone at every time can be in the thick of the battle. There are seasons whereby we are able to fight and there are seasons when we are not able to fight. Some seasons we're in the thick of the battle, some seasons we're on the sideline. Some individuals are stronger than others and by that grace they are called to fight more often in the battle to advance the kingdom. Some are weaker and cannot fight as often or as hard. We see this in the parable of Matthew chapter 20. When you have all of these people waiting to get hired, one gets hired in the morning, works all day, the other one gets hired in the afternoon, works half a day, the other one gets hired in the evening, works an hour, but they all get paid the same. However, this principle does not excuse those that are unwilling to fight. And this is an important point. It was not that the 200 men of David's army were unwilling, nor were they lazy, nor did they say, let them fight while I simply share the spoils, they were warriors. They had a track record. It was just at that time, their energy was severely depleted. Nevertheless, when we fight, we do so as a unified body. That's what David was trying to teach them. Sharing the blessing of victory. And this is why Christendom must come together as one in order to beat the enemy down as David did the Amalekites. So we fight as a unified body, sharing all the blessings of victory that we have won by the work and the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now consider the generosity of David to the elders of Judah. He gives them everything to them which were in Bethel, Ramoth, Jatir, Aorer, those in Sifmoth, those who are in Eshtimo, and Rechal, and he's listing them all, the Jeremelites, and those in the Kenites, all of these places, he's sending spoils, sending gifts. He's sending gifts. Now, he didn't have to do that, but he's unifying. He's gathering. He's solidifying. Everywhere that David and his men were to be found, David presented these cities and these men with a gift. And that was strategic. There was a strategic reason. David doesn't do anything unless it's strategic and tactical. He's making friends along the way. If there was any doubt or anger or confusion concerning the situation between Saul and David, David was paving the way now so that he might be a trusted confidant by giving gifts to these cities. Solomon tells us that a gift in secret pacifieth anger. He was giving the gifts. David's actions, however, also has strong gospel significations. 
For wherever Christ and His elect are found, they present the gift of eternal life by declaring Christ's victory of sin and death, showing that Christ is the victor and He has brought in the spoils of liberty. And to them which were in Hebron, and to all the places where David himself and his men were wont to travel, wherever David went, he's giving gifts. Wherever we go, we give the gift of life. Wherever we go, we give the gospel of Christ. We declare the law of God, just like David. At this time, we also find Saul embroiled in a life and death battle with the cursed Philistines as the Philistines gain a considerable advantage over Saul and his army. And what they needed desperately at this very hour was David. They needed God and the man of God, the giant killer of the Philistines, to be on their side. But that alliance was destroyed long ago by the tyrant Saul. We will consider this next when we move into the final chapter of 1 Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.